A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Will. I'm Emma. And on this episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss inflation and all of its impacts. And then in You Ask Us, why wouldn't Labour support workers striking for better pay and conditions during a cost of living crisis? I'm really happy to be joined by our business editor, Will Dunn. Will, we can't keep you away from the New Statesman podcast these days. Yeah, I'm like... have had a taste for the fame. Yeah, you wait six years for me to come <laughs> along and then I'm along twice in a one week. Thanks for coming. And Emma Hazlitt as well from the Business Desk is also joining us. And obviously we've been in by-election fever, so we haven't really spoken about the strikes or about inflation yet. So I'm really glad to have both of you here to chew over this stuff. Last week... We heard that the UK inflation rate hit a new 40-year high of 9.1%, and that's the highest rate in the G7. And of course, that coincided with the biggest rail strikes that this country has seen in 30 years. First of all, let's talk about the numbers. Is Obviously, the rate ha- has slowed. Is this the peak of inflation or is there more to come, Will? I don't think it is the peak, no. So the big one for the for consumer prices is going to be the, the next rise in the energy price cap, which will happen in October. That's going to take the energy price cap, so the the amount that an energy provider can charge the average household on a standard variable tariff to nearly £3,000. And then there will be another rise in the price cap in Q1 of 2023, which the energy analysts Cornwall Insight predict will take the price cap over £3,000. But in between, before that, you've also got inflation kind of happening in the background. You've got factory gate prices rising. The prices that businesses are charged for energy are not capped in the same way. The cost of raw materials rising in the background. So there is yeah, quite a significant inflation rise is still happening. And yes, the, the, the forecast for inflation to rise to 11% seems quite likely. And it certainly seems possible it could exceed that. Okay. And whose fault is that? Obviously, we've had the pandemic and that's one of the major drivers and the war in Ukraine as well. But as I said at the top, we do have the highest rate of inflation in the G7. So is that sort of a specific policy failing by our government? Is it is it Brexit? You wrote a very good piece last week. Is Brexit to blame for the UK's extra inflation, which I think all our listeners should go and read if they haven't already? I mean, what what's your take? I think it's certainly possible to I think it's certainly reasonable to say that 
Brexit has introduced new costs to doing business. So it's introduced costs on exporting in terms of the extra paperwork that needs to be done. It's introduced new costs on importing because it affected the value of the pound over the long term, which means that if you're running an Italian deli in London, then the the food that you're buying from Italy is relatively more expensive if you're buying it from your pounds bank account. It's also affected recruitment. So the more discriminating we are about who we let into the country can also mean that recruiting those people is more expensive. Now that might well be something that you want politically and in terms of the skills of people in your economy, but it doesn't change the fact that you might have to also pay more to recruit those people. It may also, and this is perhaps the most serious point, it might have a long-term effect on the way Britain is positioned against other large economic blocks. For example, if you look at battery manufacturing for electric cars, instead of being part of the EU and being part of a block that's establishing these enormous mega factories for making electric car batteries. We now have to have our own plan for doing that and compete with global car manufacturers to see if we can be the people who do that. And if we don't win those those factories as, as a country, then we will be buying in more foreign-made parts for electric cars or completed cars. Those would be relatively more expensive as well. There's also things like the the cost of innovation if we're not part of the Horizon programme. So there are lots of little things. There, there are counter-arguments to that as well, but I think there are lots of little things that add up to the cost of doing business and being part of a global economy that, that make things slightly more expensive and those translate through to consumer prices. Okay. And Emma, I mean, what can be done about this? How much is it the Bank of England's responsibility and how much is it the government's responsibility to try and bring it down, but also mitigate the impact of it? I feel like, how long have you got? Because we could talk about this for a really long time. The Bank of England has two kind of weapons at its disposal. It's got interest rates and it's got quantitative easing, which is its kind of way of it buys up bonds, which kind of injects money back into the economy. In the last few years, pretty much since the financial crisis, it has been, it, it's reduced those to very low levels. Now we're at a point where inflation is rising, so it, it does have the scope to start increasing those things. So we've had five interest rate rises in the last few months, which is we had years and years of being at 0.5%, which is a kind of historically low level of borrowing rates, which is it's really great if you're buying a house. But if, say, you're one of the millions and millions of people who can't buy a house and you're trying really hard to save, it's not really great because it's not really helping you in any way. And QE, it's kept its QE levels like reasonably high in the past few years. And I guess compared to the European Central Bank, it's been quite low. But um, the Bank of England has kept its levels fairly high, which it, it means that it can now start bringing those levels down. And again, that's a way of helping to control inflation. But I think the general consensus is that we are going to get much higher interest rates in the next few years. Adam Posen, who used to be on the Bank of England's rate setting committee and is now the president of the Peterson Institute for International Economics, has suggested around three and a half to four percent in the next kind of year or so. So that is a lot. And then what's the impact of that? What's the impact of interest rate? rises obviously it's tricky for the government because they've not actually this manifestation of the conservative party or the various successive conservative parties that have ruled since 2010 haven't ruled in a time of high interest rates what does it mean for their voters obviously the conservatives love 
rising house prices, right? Because their voters love rising house <laughs> prices. When you raise interest rates, mortgage borrowing becomes way more expensive. People are less likely to buy a new house or get a new mortgage, especially if they've locked in their mortgage deal for, for a few years. Yeah. at quite a low level. Borrowing generally becomes incredibly expensive. So if you're a business and you're looking to borrow, suddenly it's way more expensive. So the idea is that to bring down inflation, you raise interest rates and then people spend, are borrowing less and they spend less and they save more as well. I wrote a piece last week looking, or the week before last, in fact, asking, is the Bank of England's only choice to push us into a recession when people stop spending, the economy stops growing, it may even start contracting. And at that point, after two quarters of that, we're in a recession. And it looks very likely now that we are heading towards a recession. I think most people are doing what economists call pricing it in. Mm. They're expecting it. The question isn't really whether we're going into a recession anymore. The question feels more like how deep is that recession going to be? And that's one I definitely can't answer. That's so interesting. And another political headache for the Conservatives is pensions. Keeping to the triple lock would mean pensions going up by, well, it would be by the inflation rate, wouldn't it? And what impact would that have on inflation? And if they did do away with it, which seems unlikely, obviously that would have an impact on one of their most important voter bases. Yeah. So you have this interesting split between the way in which the government is currently talking about wages and the way in which it formulates policy towards pensions. You've got the government saying that we can't give striking rail workers a pay rise because they go out and spend it and all that extra demand in the economy would lead to just more inflation. But they don't seem that worried about paying pensioners proportionally twice as much, despite the fact that pensioners have more disposable income and will spend more on goods if they are given more money. There's also the fact that I think it's one in four people who receive state pension live in a house with over a million pounds of wealth. So there are very large numbers of people who don't even need their state pension, let alone a 10% rise in their state pension. And but there are, but wage growth is really slow. So I think that the latest figures from Expert HR, which tracks wage rises across the economy, I think wage growth to May has been 4% over the last year with, yeah, so it's lagging inflation by more than 5%. That, that also, just to get into that, there, there's also the fact that the inflation that we're seeing is not really driven by an excess of demand. Some of it was during the pandemic. So, for example, when everyone stopped eating in restaurants and started buying stuff on Amazon instead, that was a move from spending on services to spending on goods. And that does lead a certain kind of inflation. It's it, You're asking companies to, to spend more energy on things like energy and shipping and the cost of producing goods. And that does that shifts things around and leads to price increases. But yeah, I, I think most economists would agree that the idea of most workers getting some extra money would not lead to the, the kind of wage price spiral that we saw in the 1970s. But it does seem quite dodgy to, to give that money to the people, the group with the most disposable income. But then, yes, wealthy pensioners do generally vote conservative. So there is that. <laughs> I'm sure the Chancellor's argument defending that choice would be that pensioners don't sell their labour and so maybe they contribute so much to rising inflation but if you say that's not it's not necessarily the same calculation as it was in the 70s then perhaps that's not quite right and there is obviously an electoral calculation there but it also jars with the with the decision that the government made not to put universal credit or other benefits up with inflation as well and I was speaking to a Bank of England economist about this and I was putting the argument to him that the Treasury were making that it would contribute to inflation 
rising and <laughs> they actually said that's bollocks. They did give an economic explanation for that. But yeah, so I do think they've got the opportunity to cushion the people who are worse off, who are always the people who are affected the most by inflation, rising prices, it's, rising bills. Yeah. And bollocks, it, the technical term. we'll have a glossary in the show notes so that our (laughs) listeners can understand all of these complicated things we're talking about (laughs) i think it's worth pointing out that also the the parts of inflation so the the areas in which the price rises are steepest so the biggest contributor to that the rise to 9.1 percent so far is food and non-alcoholic beverages for may and then obviously that i think the the Monetary Policy Committee have said that about 80% of the overall inflation figure is due to the rise in the cost of energy. So food and energy are things that comprise really big parts of the, the disposable income of people on lower incomes. It would seem fairest to yeah to address that as the biggest problem is the cost of living. And actually that's something relevant to some of the discussion around Brexit as well as regardless of whether or not you see Brexit as being a major contributor to inflation it's probably still more credible to say that it's a contributor to to the cost of living because it affects things like food prices because we other than domestically produced food for example are biggest source of food is the EU still. The changes in how in the cost of things that we buy from there are going to impact people's disposable income in that way. Okay, and of course, when this happens, what happens naturally is that workers try and get paid more so that they can afford the higher prices. And obviously, we've mentioned the strikes briefly, but it does look like there are going to be more strikes down the line, particularly in the public sector, nurses and teachers. I think their unions have been saying to expect industrial action. Emma, what can the government do about this? They're, they're trying to preach restraint in terms of asking for a pay rise and they're taking a tough line on the strikes, which could also be seen as a political decision. If we're going to have a summer of utter disruption, then they are going to have to take a different tack. Well, one of my favourite things is that they've grudgingly had to ask people to work from home during the train strikes, which is considering... <laughs> the union <new> century. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Considering the absolute Tory hatred of working from home, like it's, they've turned it into a culture wars thing, which is bizarre. They've now had to go, oh, actually, no one's going to be able to get in, so you're going to have to work from home. What can they do? I don't know is the answer. I think one thing that I think it's likely going back to the inflation point that's absolutely fascinated me is you've had a bunch of companies coming in and giving their employees a one-off bonus. Yeah. So we've had like off the top of my head last week, we had Rolls-Royce giving, announcing a two grand bonus for their, every single one of their employees. And I find that really interesting because it indicates that inflation might go away so that like maybe next year we don't need to give them a full-time pay rise because next year like inflation won't be here. There's been this theory of transitory inflation like doing the rounds for ages. It's, it seems to have been pretty much discredited. So I do wonder whether the government's had some involvement in those kind of one-off bonuses rather than pay rises because that if you don't give your employees a pay rise and you just give them a one-off bonus, that's going to keep wage rise is actually down quite a lot. And there's two measures of wage rise, one with and one without bonuses. So it's interesting to see whether those kind of one-off bonuses will become a regular annual thing or what will happen. They're called cost of living bonuses. But as for what the government can do other than just beg companies not to give their employees pay rises, I think we're going to see a lot more of this strike action because you know, you've got doctors and nurses and teachers and they've all had to endure horrific pandemics. They've had almost no thanks. I don't think there's a lot the government can do to prevent anger, frankly. 
Yeah. No, I mean, that, and obviously they've had real terms wage cuts for... Also, yeah. I'd say arguably more dangerous than anger for the rest of us is apathy or the decision to, to go and work in something else. I think surveys from the Royal College of Nursing and from teachers' unions have shown that very, very high numbers of nurses and teachers are looking at moving jobs quite soon. And who can blame them? If you work in the private sector... Yes, there are a lot of workers in the private sector who aren't going to be getting bonuses or pay rises, but you can shop around. A, a teacher does not have, can't just go and look at a whole bunch of other schools and market their labour in the same way that an accountant can. Yeah, I think there, there is likely to be a high number of quits within those professions and that could place still more pressure on what we're going to do about the availability of those services. It's fascinating that for years the government has been really there was this whole line during David Cameron's prime ministership I was going to say premiership that and they wanted to run the government like a company they wanted it to be super efficient but the way capitalism works is supply and demand decide what you pay so if you've got a low supply of nurses you pay them more and that gets more nurses in that's how capitalism works that's the kind of I did that in my GCSE business studies the government suddenly is not behaving like a company at all in that it is not paying what the market is demanding for these these people they are leaving at my local A&E the other day I've got a really handy app that tells you how long the A&E waits are a 12-hour wait in my local A&E that's absolutely insane considering four hours is, for years was seen as like the maximum. Yeah, it's I think that's the target, mad. isn't it? And they haven't met that target since 2015, I think. And also I heard recently that more midwives are actually leaving than they yeah. are recruiting for at the moment. And we heard a few weeks ago that there are more vacancies in this country the f- for the first time than there are workers available to fill them. To be honest, I do think these are all going to end up being big electoral problems down the line. But on the next half of the podcast, we're going to talk about what it means for Labour. But before that, on a completely different note, our listeners might be interested in our senior editor on China and global affairs, Katie Stallard's latest interview with Chris Patton, the last British colonial governor of Hong Kong, published on today's episode of our sister podcast, World Review. The Tory peer and former chair of the party has some very damning things to say about Boris Johnson and the direction of the Conservative Party. Well, we can't blame other countries for not trusting our prime ministers because we don't trust him, do we? And at the moment, the determinant of of government policy seems to be to please the right wing of the Conservative Party or the DUP in Northern Ireland in order to try to keep, just to save the Prime Minister's skin. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Ian McEwan on wrestling with Orwell's Inside the Whale. Might we reasonably assume that there is no longer an inside to the whale? That the creature lies stranded on the beach, as whales sometimes are? That the guts and blubber and ribcage are on display? A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk. At first, the problems weren't ideological, but practical, technical, and quite, well, obvious. And Maria Wilczek on Belarusian football fans who took on Alexander Lukashenko. After the August 2020 protests, 
Hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You, you ask, ask us. us. Well done. I like that sort of staccato <laughs> flavour that you brought to it. Thanks for that. So we've got an anonymous question. Why wouldn't Labour support workers striking for better pay and conditions during a cost of living crisis? This, this is, is literally this. a question I have been asking myself, so I'm really excited to hear an answer. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you're part of the answer. But yeah, I'll have a go at it first. Obviously, this these strikes last week, a bit of a sort of subplot of these strikes was the divisions within the Labour Party responding to them. You had Keir Starmer issuing instructions to his front benches not to join picket lines. Then you had some of those front benches, including a whip, breaking the, those rules and going to go and join workers on the pickets. And you've had a few noises off from shadow cabinet ministers. Wes Streeting apparently had to apologise for the sort of negative press that he attracted by saying that if he were a rail worker, he would also be voting to, to go on strike. So there's obviously division within the party. I've been asking around about this, a few sources within the shadow cabinet. And as far as I can make out, Keir Starmer's office's instinct was to condemn them or at least to be to talk tough on them. But that has had a lot of pushback from people on the front bench because mainly because what happens when nurses decide to strike in a few months time, for example, obviously, the political nature of that is very different. I imagine that there would be a lot more public sympathy for those strikes than there are for the rail strikes. And even the polling that we've seen and Ben Walker, our polling guru who's written about this on State of the Nation, there's quite a lot of ambivalence about it. There does seem to be quite a lot of support for the strikers or at least sympathy for their demands among the general public in terms of the rail strikes. So what happens when nurses strike? So that's been a concern among Labour front benches. They don't want to come out just for the sake of a good line a Daily Mail article in order to grow back and take a softer stance and look like hypocrites when other workers strike who perhaps more, have more public sympathy. So I think that's the sort of political context to this question. In terms of why wouldn't Labour just outright support the rail strikers, which I think this question is re referring to, that's because obviously public sympathy does tend to wane if these strikes go on and on. We've seen that from history. The disruption has been caused to students trying to take their exams, other people, people trying to get to medical appointments and stuff. The more and more stories you get about those things, the more and more the public is likely to turn against that cause. And so it's a populist question for Keir Starmer that he obviously doesn't want to look like he is in sympathy with them. Labour has that baggage, particularly from the Jeremy Corbyn era, of looking like Marxists, as they are often painted in the right wing tabloids. And actually, 
I think it was the Mail actually took the advantage of putting pictures up of left-wing Labour MPs joining the picket lines to try and paint that image. But then at the same time, they're caught in a bind because, of course, they get, are not affiliated to RMT, but they do get support from the unions. They get financial support from some unions. Certain MPs are backed by certain unions, and so they, they have to try and keep union bosses at least halfway happy. So that's the dilemma for them. But that's always been the dilemma for Labour yeah. for years. And so they've always tried to take this neither condone nor condemn line. It's nothing new. It's just whether or not Boris Johnson and his party are able to exploit that when actually I do think the general feeling is of a country that's not being run very well. I feel like Keir Starmer must have been wildly optimistic if he thought that he could stop his MPs from joining picket lines. Like, Labour be labouring, that's what they do. It's like the scorpion and the frog. Yeah, Labour like, gonna labe. Yeah, Labour's gonna labe, exactly. <laughs> they um, are the party of organised labour. It's very difficult <laughs> to break that link. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm quite surprised that he ever thought that that was going to happen. And also, I'm wildly centrist when it comes. I am I am the ultimate centrist dad, but I feel quite supportive of these strikes. So I'm wondering how many people actually are like, oh, how many Labour voters specifically are strongly against them? Yeah, I think it might be one of those. I haven't seen the party splits of the polling, but it's probably mm. one of those wedge issues that we're hearing so much about. Will, how much basis is there in Keir Starmer's position not to full-throated in support of the rail workers? I suppose I can... I'll try to be the person in this conversation who tries to understand (laughs) why they would take this position. And I think, yeah... at a time at which public services are already severely disrupted it could be seen as 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 dangerous to to openly support further disruption of public services however that could also work the other way people might say that if you try getting a gp appointment lately if you try going to a and e how many teaching assistants are available in your kids schools the public services are in a pretty dire state and to kind of sit on the sidelines in that is is possibly a more dangerous position. Just to refer back to what you mentioned about the way in which Labour was perceived, particularly during the Corbyn era. One of the things that I do remember from the Corbyn era that I think Labour is perhaps missing now on an economic front is, you know, whether or not you agreed with them, you could certainly say what Labour's politics were with regard to the economy at that point. And a lot of people did, aside from everything else that came with the Corbyn era, a lot of people did like the fact that here was a a party with big economic ideas and proposed solutions. And that seems to be something that that is, is lacking to a certain extent from the debates around the cost of living and inflation. Most of the parties still seem to be suggesting things that sound fairly like plastery. Let's have a VAT cut here. Let's do a bit of tweaking some tax here and not very large scale changes to way, the way in which the economy is managed to cope with what could be a very significant time for Britain's economy over the next few years. Yeah, I actually really agree with that. I spoke to Rachel Reeves and Wes Streeting, Shadow Chancellor and Shadow Health Secretary yesterday, and I asked them about the cost of living policies and about Labour's response to inflation. And, you know, I'll leave it to, to our listeners to make up their own minds when they read my piece, but didn't feel like there was an overarching kind of narrative there. They mentioned the windfall tax, which already, you know, the Conservative Party has conceded. So that feels a bit like 
not something new and also not going ahead with the national insurance tax hike that's not really a sort of positive policy in itself kind of just deciding not to do something that this government is doing and their main message was improving growth and they did have a few examples of policies that they think would bring that about namely big climate investment pledges but that pledge was made last conference season it does feel like there is a little bit of a paucity of policies when cost of living should probably be Labour's special subject if you like and I think the biggest problem and you mentioned it under Corbyn, at least people knew who he stood for. When I was going round reporting ahead of the local elections and also uh, in these by-elections that we've had, I was speaking to people and a lot of what they said about Keir Starmer was, I don't really know, he hasn't said much, has he? I don't really know, they might not even know who he is. I've heard that from people before. And I, so I think his biggest problem is not necessarily the associations with Labour's past, but it is that he seems like a fence-sitter. And that's something that the Conservatives have used as an attack line. They call him Captain Hindsight to suggest, you know, he only comes down on one side when he sees which, ways the wi- which way the wind's blowing. And that's something that voters have really reflected back, both in the polling and also in when you're going out and about reporting around the country. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it is re- reflected in the way in which Labour currently talks to the electorate about the economy. Yeah, like I said, wherever you thought of John McDonnell's economic positions, he did talk about the economy a lot. And obviously, listeners to the New Statesman podcast are extremely well informed and clever and know all about economics anyway. But I think there might be a bit of a dangerous assumption that people don't want to talk about the numbers. They don't want to hear about economic ideas and they want to talk about the cost of living as well. Uh, but I think I think they should have a bit more faith in the in their voters to understand those concepts and to talk about what's going on behind them. For example, so one of just going back to inflation, one of the entities, a few entities that does really well out of inflation on a general level is the government because in an inflationary economy, if wages are rising and prices are rising, then tax receipts are also rising. Your normal GDP is going up. So it can actually be good for, for the exchequer in the short term if it's accompanied by growth, which unfortunately isn't in the UK at the moment, for inflation to take place. And Labour could be talking about the difference between the amount of money that Rishi Sunak is taking in and the amount that which he is prepared to, to pay out again to spend on public services. But that, that doesn't really seem to be materialising in the debate. I know we could talk about this forever. We'll definitely have you back on as we watch what happens over the summer. And if listeners want to re- read more about this stuff and the challenges facing the global economy, they should subscribe to The Crash, your new newsletter, which comes out first thing on a Wednesday morning. Yes, you should. It comes out every Wednesday at seven o'clock in the morning. And it's our weekly look at the challenges facing the global economy, which is quite a lot at the moment. (laughs) A long email. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's bite-sized, Anoush. It's easy to read. It's digestible. So how do our listeners find it? So you can get your weekly dose of economic doom and also some fun at the New Statesman website or by searching for New Statesman The Crash. Or you can subscribe on LinkedIn. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues Will Dunn and Emma Hazlitt. We're produced by May Robson and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review. Sick of being upsold at gyms? 
my guy. You're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.